Hi friend, this is Alex McRobbs, founder of The Mindful Life Practice, and you're listening to the Sober Yoga Girl podcast. I'm a Canadian who moved across the world at age 23 and I never went back. I got sober in 2019 and I realized that there was no one talking about sobriety in Dubai and Abu Dhabi, so I started doing it. I now live in Bali, Indonesia, and full-time run my community, The Mindful Life Practice. I host online sober yoga challenges, yoga teacher trainings, and I work one-on-one with others, helping them break up with booze for good. In this podcast, I sit down with others in the sobriety and mental health space from all walks of life and hear their stories so that I can help you on your journey. You're not alone, and a sober life can be fun and fulfilling. Let me show you how. All right. Hello. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Sober Yoga Girl. Before I hop into the episode, I just wanted to quickly mention if you have not yet joined our free Sober Curious Facebook group, we have about a thousand people in there. It's pretty amazing. A lot of great conversations and support going on. So I will pop the link in the episode description. And without further waiting, I'm going to get into today's episode. So I'm very excited to have Peggy Cooney here with me today. And Peggy and I have quite a few mutual friends, actually, as the way that like the sober world always works. We all know each other. But Peggy is a good friend of Kathy's and Jeff G, who are both really involved in the Mindful Life practice. And I've heard so much about her and the work she does and the book she wrote and her Facebook group with the sober world. So I'm just super excited to actually meet her today and and hear a lot about her story and her journey. So welcome, Peggy. How are you? Thank you. I'm good. Glad to be here. Nice to have you here. And I was wondering if we could start and you could tell me a little bit about sort of you and and where you are in the world and a little bit of your story. Sure. Um, I currently live in Northern California, so right outside the capital city of West. We live in West Sacramento and also live up in the mountains about three hours away. We're retired, which is a joke because I retired for 14 days, but we have two places we live. So, um, yeah, so I um, live in Northern California. I am married to Paul for 35 years and we have five kids together and uh, 12 grandkids. So yeah, social work instructor for UC Davis. That's my, my after retirement job. So I've been teaching social work and coaching for about eight years. Amazing. Are you coaching? Are you sober coaching? No, I, um, I'm coaching social workers. So um, one of the biggest as Maya Angelou says, we, you know, we, we do something until we learn better and then we do better. Yeah. The social work field's very young. So it's really exciting to be, especially around child welfare and adult protective services. So we're always learning new things that work better. And one of the central things that we do currently is um, coaching. We teach safety organized practice, which is strength-based, trauma-focused, really trying to get families back together if they have to be separated absolutely as soon as possible with the least amount of trauma, which is impossible. I coach people on how to do uh, family facilitation, family meeting facilitation, and also individual coaching as social workers. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, it's a dream job for sure. And you have a huge family, five kids, 12 grandkids. My daughter has two sets of twins, so she made up for a third of the population. She's very, 
She's wow. hilarious. <laughs> wow. Oh, yeah. amazing. And have you always been in California? Yes. I was born and raised near San Francisco. So, and my boys still live. I have two adult boys. They live down there. And my daughter lives in, really nearby in Sacramento. So, Oh, beautiful. I've actually never been to California. So, but I can imagine it. I imagine it's like really sunny and warm and palm trees and beachy. It's my imagination. <laughs> it's everything. So, and so, we still have about four feet of snow up at our cabin right now. So, and it's really. It's only three hours away, yeah. I would have never guessed that. I guess yes. I guess Tahoe, Tahoe's in California, right? I knew that because a long time back, I was looking at a yoga teacher training there, like in 2013. And I remember Tahoe was like a ski hill. So I guess I knew that there was California, but I guess, or not California, there was snow in California, but it wasn't the, uh, um, the image that exactly comes right. to mind. But there you go. Right. So I was wondering if you could give us a little bit of context into your story with alcohol and your sober journey. Like, where did your drinking begin? You know, I, I probably always drank. I didn't drink until I was 21. My parents drank, so I was not really into drinking and really promised myself that I would, I would never really be into drinking. And, you know, I did the normal 21, you know, 20s uh, drinking, but it was always pretty bingy. But as I got married and was raising my kids, you know, I drank socially and I, you know, we justify everything that we do, but I really did drink socially. In fact, you know, I had a lot of um, fancy bottles of alcohol on my brand new hutch that, that we bought. And I just bought the bottles because they were pretty. Right. And about two years after we had that, I was going to, I finally was going to break out one of that really fancy bottles of vodka. And my, my daughter, my kids are all older than you. and said, mom, don't drink it. It's just water. So they had managed to drink all the alcohol out of the bottles and make it look like nothing ever happened. So at that point, you know, in my, my thirties and forties, I really, I just drank socially. That was about it. But when I did drink, looking back on it, it was never one. It was always, always kind of a, you know, a bingy style of drinking. But we didn't keep alcohol really, well, other than those bottles my kids drink. We didn't really keep alcohol in the house. And I really didn't start drinking until I was in my 50s, where it started to become a little bit of a problem. And really, that came out of working in child welfare. Yeah, I'm a social worker and was doing direct practice. And after a while, I mean, I, nobody becomes a social worker and, and thinks, oh my gosh, I'm never going to see child abuse or I'm never going to see elder abuse. It doesn't happen. You know you're going in there and you're going to see that. But what really starts to hurt your soul is the fact that when a child discloses they've been abused they're the ones that have to be taken out of the home and put with strangers and after years of that it just it breaks your heart and that's kind of when I started drinking also I think one of the other factors really had to do with being a blended family I brought three kids into the marriage he brought two we've been Mm -hmm. married for about 35 years and that was, that was a lot of stress. I really tried to be like the best stepmom on the planet and there's no such thing. So that was kind of stressy too, but the system really started. I found myself, you know, working and then 
I have a very, let's say, a very black and white husband. Who, he's a financial analyst, so he really does th- see things in data and black and white. And when you're a social worker, you just can't come home and really talk about the stuff that you're experiencing. And you almost get to a point where the abuse doesn't affect you anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, not in the way it should affect you because you see it all the time and you it just it yeah. starts to eat out your soul that from the inside out. You know, the final um, nail, I guess, would be that there was a huge sexual harassment case where my, my manager sexually harassed a, a male coworker. And I don't want to get into detail more than that, but a female and a male, it was one of the big five, right? Because it was a manager on a, on a subordinate. Mm-hmm. And I had to be the whistleblower. I wouldn't have done it any other way, but it did make my life hell, yeah. absolute hell for two years. I had two years to retire. You know, he left because he was so humiliated. Um, We made the headlines of the local news station. I had family saying, why should we trust you? Look what you did. You know, why should we trust you with our children? Look what you did at work. So really, you know, having her, I ended up having her job, his job and my job. And my daughter was getting married that year. So that's really when it really escalated is just wow. to get through those two years. I had, and I was stubborn, you know, I, I could have retired and I just, I had two years to get my full retirement and I, I had this really annoying stubbornness that I wasn't going to let them win. And so I, I put an app on my phone and, and uh, did a countdown and I retired, you know, the day I turned 62. Wow. You know, I was retired for 14 days, um, and then UC Davis called me up and asked me to teach for them, and it is an absolute dream job. And it's all the, it's all the wonder without the direct practice, the secondary trauma. I get to teach mm-hmm. new social workers. I get to teach them, and with the latest, with the latest information that we have. So it's, I've been doing that for about eight years, but what I realized Two years after I started teaching, I was selected out of 1,750 instructors. I got instructor of the year, and I found myself going home that night. And, of course, there was wine at that ceremony too, right? And I, and I realized that I really couldn't stop drinking. Like, by that time, I was really addicted to an addictive substance. I wasn't really willing to admit it. It very much at that time, but I knew in my heart that I was in trouble. One of those high functioning, and I hate that word because it's so, it, it's kind of meaningless. But I, you know, I managed to work. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I planned everything around working. I would teach and then I would come home and study for the next day and then I would drink. So, I, but you know, my, the people that suffered in my life were my family. Yeah. You know, I was teaching by day and breaking my family's heart at night. Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing your story. And there's so much in that story. Like what struck me first is sharing the point where you weren't drinking much throughout your adulthood. And then it really hit at a a much later age than the majority of people I speak to. Like most people I speak to, it was, it would be at a younger age where alcohol became a problem and then was just a problem for a long time. And I think your story is a, a perfect example of how, our ex- 
external world and all the things happening and all the stresses we have going on can like create this storm for us, like at any point in our lives where we're just like, how do I cope with this? And then the drinking begins. And so I think that's a really interesting example of how it's not always so it's not always such a cookie cutter experience for everyone. Like for everyone, it's different. Yeah. About three years ago, my, my director put out a survey and so that was three years ago. So that was pre COVID. Right. And Mm -hmm. uh, the survey talked about using any, any kind of um, addiction or um, overuse of anything. And there's a high obesity rate among social workers too. So food, you know, alcohol, uh, shopping, relationship problems. And uh, yeah, so 60% of the, of the respondents, which we know it's way more now with, with COVID um, reported that they had an issue around one of those four things. Yeah. My sister's a social worker. As we have this conversation, I'm like, I should give her a call. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> where she's um in uh, where we grew up in toronto yeah okay. i always think it's interesting that my sister and i both became healers but just with like very different mm-hmm. modalities um yeah. i think it's interesting that we both have that in common very much yeah so tell me about what was the moment for you that led you to quit drinking Again, I, it was my early 50s when I, when I stopped, when I realized I had a problem. But there had been like maybe four incidents that were major where, you know, I passed out at my daughter's mother-in-law's uh, Mother's Day barbecue. I just passed out, had blacked out. Um, I had another couple weddings um, that I went to that my, that I embarrassed my daughter around, um, you know, just drinking too much and not, not being one of those blatant crazy people. And I'm, nobody's crazy. They're just sick is Paul and I would get into a fight and then the family would get involved. That's always been the sort of MO, right. That might, he would get upset about my drinking and then pull the family into the problem. Does that make sense? Yeah. The last incident, we were up at we're up at Lake Tahoe. Paul has an annual, um, his family has an annual family picnic there. And we rented this beautiful house in Tahoe. And Lindsay, my daughter, with the two sets of twins and her husband, Jason, and then my son, Brett, we all stayed in the same place. And I didn't drink during the day at the, at the beach. Um, by that time, I was pretty pretty able to keep it together during the day so that I wouldn't embarrass anyone or myself. I was pretty aware of it. But when I, you know, after eight hours in the sun, you know, the hot sun, and then I came home and I had two shots of whiskey, and I don't even drink whiskey. I don't even drink it. It's never been alcohol of my choice. It hit me like a brick. And Paul got really upset when Lindsay came home uh, with the kids and Brett came home, um, they, you know, they came home from the picnic later than we did. Paul was screaming at me. So Brett went after my husband almost and almost decked him. And then my son, son-in-law, Jason had to pull Brett off my husband in front of my four grandkids that were three and seven. And I, I don't think I could have hated myself anymore 
that night. I don't think I, you know, Paul left, he, he left with no intention of returning to the marriage and, uh, you know, Brett, Brett's the caretaker and he wanted to make sure that I was okay. But the next morning, Lindsay said to me, and, and she really did save my life. She said, mom, if you want the kind of relationship you want to have with me, Jason and the kids, you have to do something about your drinking. And I already knew before I came out and she said that, I knew that I was done. It's really crazy, but I, I really understood what she was saying. I, of course, I was, I had self-loathing up, you know, just complete self-loathing. But I went into the bedroom and I, I was just so crushed and so shameful that I just got down on my knees and I heard this voice and I'm not a woo-woo person at all like mm-hmm. not at all and I heard this voice that said you're done and you're going to be okay wow. and I I flipped on my Facebook page and this advertisement for Sober Sis uh, her name is Jen Couch and she's out of Texas had a 21 day reset um, program and I signed up for it wow. and she has a Marco Polo component to it where you know video walkie talkie and I made my first video that morning and uh, that's that's how it how it happened but I knew I knew at that point that it was almost a relief when Lindsay called me on it because before that my my kids really made a lot of excuses for me mom you need to eat when you drink you know you're just tired so really Lindsay had finally had it and it wasn't all the time. I wasn't, it wasn't like I was, and again, it doesn't matter. You start going into that, into that part of your brain going, well, it wasn't as bad as that person, but I was, it was, yeah, I was, <laughs> I was you know, much further than that, you know, who knows what would have happened if I, if she hadn't stepped in. Yeah. Wow. Thanks for sharing that. I love that part of your story about going on Facebook and seeing a Facebook ad because that's what happened to me. Um, Yeah. I don't know if you've heard this part of my story on episodes or anything, but I was seeing targeted ads for one year, no beer. And that was my, keep saying, you know, we think that we're like, oh, social media has so many, you know, negative things, blah, 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 blah. But for me, I do think it's the reason that I quit drinking because I don't think I had ever seen sobriety positioned in such a cool way, such a different way. And for me, I thought AA was the only way and that did not pull me in. And this whole thing of like sobriety being cool and like, you know, one year, mm-hmm. no beer, like hip, like this pulled me in. And so I just think it's amazing how the universe is sending us messages through like the social media algorithms. And like, I love that for you, it's completely different. I've never even heard of sober sis, but I love that it's a totally different program, but it's like the universe was like sending it to you, you know? Yeah. That was again, another huge lesson for me that if I wasn't, if I would just be open and ever since then things have happened for me because I'm present and I'm, I'm willing to hear that. I'm really, Mm -hmm. you know, I, it was very clear for me that I was done and that it was no accident that, you know, Jen and her labradoodle showed up on my Facebook page that, you know, that morning, you know, really the rest is history with her. You know, I'm still really involved with uh, sober sis um, and a lot of other programs. Cause I'm, <laughs> I'm crazy that way. Uh-huh. So. 
So tell me about, so you said you're still involved with Sober Resist, lots of other programs. Tell me about what those initial sobriety days were like, like what kind of support did you use? What were your strategies? How did you get through it? Oh yeah, that's fine. Um, I never journaled before. I journaled that day and I've journaled every day. So I'm at 32 months, I think. I've journaled every day. There hasn't been a day that I haven't journaled. And again, I don't know why I started journaling. I just started journaling. But uh, And one of the caveats I made is that Sobersys was going to have a retreat in uh, Fort Worth in October. I quit on July 12, 2019. So I bought a ticket. I bought the airfare. And so that was kind of my carrot, you know, yeah. for, for staying sober those first 100 days. And at the retreat, I just started posting my journal entries. I started, she has a big, she had a big Facebook program. Now she has a uh, Mighty Networks instead. She doesn't use Facebook anymore. But so I started posting every day of just how I was feeling, right? What was going on that day for me. So what am I? Um, day 979 or something right now. And I posted, I, I posted every day on her site for, for a year. And people said, oh my gosh, you know, I love your poster. Like, that's me too. That's exactly how I felt. And um, that kind of was the basis for the book um, that I ended up writing. But let's see what, I mean, I, I did Annie Grace's 100 Days. Um, another person that's not necessarily... Alcohol is Stacy. Can't remember her last name, but she does a brain around brain chemicals and uh, brain boosting. So that was really fun to take her class. And Stacy Danford is her name, and she's a friend of Jen from Sober Sis. So you know, I read every Quitlet book on on the planet. My, in fact, my, you know, I really do. Like so many other people, need a support group for the books that I have. <laughs> everywhere I'm an avid reader and um, that's one thing my mom did with me so and that you know it's just uh, I took Laura McCowan's uh, We're the Luckiest in Living Color yeah I mean I just really put and I think one of the things that that I can't say enough and this people don't get to do this like I do is that university at one year I told my director what was going on Mm -hmm. and they have been the most supportive people on the planet. I mean, I'm actually doing a, um, presenting my book at the wellness conference in Anaheim this year. And there's so many people in the world, especially in the medical field that aren't able to come out like I did. It's so true. I just feel like it, it definitely is my passion, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I loved hearing your story because I just feel like I'm resonating so much with it. Like so many similarities just in the sense, like I got writing in the private Facebook group of one year, no beer. And then I ended up writing a book as well. Um, That's still, I mean, no movement has been done with it. So kudos to you for getting yours published and everything. That's amazing. And then, you know, coming out and speaking to your employers. And I got really lucky too in that. I actually told my employers when I was seven days sober and I actually was having a breakdown at work and they just like fully supported me and they knew in like the 90 days and supported me. And it was amazing considering like I was a teacher, you know, and teacher in the Mm -hmm. Middle East where alcohol is so taboo in the first place. So 
wow, there's just so much that, that resonated there. So thank you so much for, for sharing all of that. I love what you're saying, Alex, too. And I was talking to, I have a person that does all my social media because I'm old and I don't know how to do any of it. And she's wonderful. So I just write and she, she makes that look nice. Mm -hmm. But I was kind of bashing myself this morning about being older. Like maybe I'm not as relevant, but you know, this, this connection we feel you're in your twenties. I'm going to be 70 this year. Yeah. The connection among people is is almost like it's sometimes it's it's overwhelming it's so beautiful yeah and you know what i feel that within every different person like you know i had a guest on my show who was like a parent of youngish children and um worked in like whatever her job was. I think she worked in media or something. But anyway, one of my yoga members listened to that episode and messaged me and said, you know, this isn't anything against you, but I just really, really resonated with her a bit more than you because she is a mom and whatever, whatever. And so when you say like, you know, maybe I'm not as relevant, it's like different parts of us are going to resonate with different people for different reasons. And it doesn't mean like that I was not the right person for that listener but just they found something in this person that was like yeah that resonates that's me and so i don't think it matters like what age anyone is or what their story is because it's going to resonate with different people all over the world and as long as we're all we all have the same goal which is like helping people get sober right, right? so i think it's beautiful well, it was so funny because one of my first not my, well maybe i was four four years in with my teaching and um I was teaching up in Humboldt County, which is just such a beautiful part of Northern California and right on the, right on the water seals, you know, right on the ocean. And this one, one young guy got up and he, we were, it was about uh, fairness and equity that I was teaching fairness and equity. And he got up and he said, you know, when I saw you and stand up in front of my class, it was a young Hmong boy, man. And he he said, when I saw you, I'm like, oh, God, like, she's going to be boring. <laughs> he said, you end up being one of the best teachers I ever had. You're funny. You're relevant. Wow. And I thought, and, you know, I've always shared that, you know, he, he wrote it almost like in a poem form when he did it. But I love the connection. I absolutely, you know, I think that connection is probably my middle name. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Beautiful. So you mentioned your book. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about that. So your book is based off of the posts that you did journaling mm-hmm. about your sober days. Tell me more. Yeah, it's kind of in um, a different parts. Like the, it's called This Side of Alcohol. And so the first chapter is the first 90 days. So the first 90 days, just every, you know, really my raw post that I had when I was going through it. And so it really shows that up and down, you know, like, I know I'm never going to drink again. I fucking hate everybody. You know, that, you know, just that up and down, up and down that happens. And, and then also, you know, my, it's, it's really weaved. It's, it's kind of like a clear pulley with sober diaries because it's, it has my journal entries, but it's also uh, weaved in. That's probably not even a word with stories about me growing up. And, you know, I grew up in a very alcoholic family, but I didn't really understand that it was alcoholic, really intimate partner violent situation with my parents. And so just some really funny stories as well. My dad, uh, I have three brothers. One is uh, 10 years younger than I am. And then my older brother's 
are eight and 10 years older and they have a different father. Their father passed away. So we were driving with my dad one time and my little brother, I was 16. So it was right before my parents got divorced and my little brother was six. And my dad was this smoke, the coolest guy ever. My dad was a cool guy. Like he could bench, he could uh, start water skiing on the beach, a beach start, go all the way around the lake with his Panama hat on with his cigarette. And then, you know, he'd get dropped off at the beach, kick off his skis, walk off and, you know, stamp his cigarette out, you know, all very uh, environmentally unfriendly, but that was a long time ago. He was just a cool guy. People really liked him. But my dad was driving and we had this big old monster Oldsmobile 88. It's like a boat. I think I ended up with it in high school as a bride present when my parents got divorced. My dad was smoking a cigarette and he, he, flung the cigarette out the window and it went around and got and it got on my brother's crotch and it was on it was smoking so I'm screaming in the back of the car going dad stop the car my brother's on fire and my dad just picked up his beer like pulled over oh my god around with his beer this is just how people lived when I was younger it was like normal right yeah. So he opened up my brother's car door, poured some beer on my brother's oh, car. Oh my goodness! It was just—it was a crazy life. Wow! I don't even know why I brought that up. I You're just you talk to. <laughs> I love this example that you give because I was actually just thinking the other day. This is a little bit off topic, but I was a grade one teacher, and so I I step into that personality sometimes and. I was riding my motorbike and I pulled up to the, to the cross, the intersection. There were two really young kids, two Indonesian kids on a motorbike together. One of them was driving it. Like, I think they might've been like 10, one with no helmet. They both had no helmet. And I don't think they could really understand me, but I stopped and I go, where's your helmet? And they're like, no, no, no. And I'm like, you need a helmet. Your brain's important. (laughs) And as I drove off, I was thinking about a similar incident that happened when I was in Kuwait, which was like children driving a car, which I kind of freaked out and was like, this isn't safe anyway. But I love that you bring that up because I was then thinking about how, as I drove off, how every culture is so different and what's normal in ours is not in theirs. And so for me to see children without helmets, I'm like, that's so unsafe, but for their culture, that's not maybe something that they have really known about. And then I love the example you give, because that's not so long ago, right? That would have been like, 60 years ago and that was normal in American and Canadian culture. Yeah. To drink beer and have your cigarette while you're driving in the car. And I just love that example because I think sometimes we think when we see these things and we come from our Western perspective, we think that we maybe like know better or something, but you know, 50 years ago, we were still doing stuff like that too. So even my kids didn't have seatbelts. Wow. We we didn't have, we didn't, our kids did not, when they were babies, weren't in seatbelts. Or car seats. There was no car seat. Yeah. Wow. It's, you know, That's we used to stand mad up in the back of a, of a van, you know, and I, one time we turned around and he was, he was asleep and he was standing up. Was wow. Just, <laughs> we just yeah. didn't, you know, things are different. Yeah. I was just yeah. actually laughing with my best. One of the gifts that happened out of getting sober is my best friend, she was the best friend in my wedding. Her name's Gretchen. And we roomed together. We we got into, we drank a lot together. Um, but we were best friends. And you know how you, you get married and people drift apart. And 
last year, maybe the year before, it doesn't really matter. I went, I wonder where Gretchen is. So I reached out to her. It's only an hour away from me. So we see each other all the time now. But we were just laughing this morning when we were talking on the phone. We got so drunk one night that, and we were driving separate cars. And when the guy, when the policeman pulled us over, we both pulled over. <laughs> both of us pulled over. Wow. Like he turned his light on and we both pulled over. But what we were talking about is how different, you're talking about culture. Yeah. How different that culture was because he pulled us over, he drove us home and he asked her out. You know, and now everybody, and, and just for the right reasons too, you know, you're going to get a DUI, but it was so different then. I mean, it wasn't, mm. wasn't the same as it, you know, what it is it now. It is now. Yeah. It's crazy. So yeah. interesting. All right. We digress. Where were we? I was no. asking about Sorry, your I book. That. I'm really good at it. I honestly, I am too. And I, and that's what I love about these conversations. I love getting on calls with people and like hearing their stories and their journeys. And there's so much more to a person than just their sobriety, you know? So what have been, I guess, some of the the best and most challenging parts of sobriety you've already shared, but like, what have been the best parts of being alcohol free? I would say, I think the the absolute biggest thing is that I have a huge integrity core value. And now, now I'm just in alignment, like who I am on the outside. I know we hear it all the time, but truly who I am on the outside is who I am on the inside. I'm predictable. I have a nice, simple life. I feel like I wrote, I wrote my, in my journal this morning, I, I've always been afraid to die, like terrified of dying. And I think part of that is, you know, my mom died I lost my parents, both of them, when I was 19. Lots of childhood trauma, but um, my mom drank, right? And what you made me think about was that for my mom, even though I really didn't realize that alcohol was the major problem, because my older brothers kind of made sure that we didn't know, which kind of made it worse, right? Because we didn't know what kind of, like when when we walked in the door, we didn't know what kind of mom we were going to get. And I think I would have been more okay with it if I would have known that alcohol caused it, if that makes sense. But like my mom never got to make living amends, right? And I think Mm -hmm. one of the most beautiful things about being sober is that my kids can really say, my mom overcame the one thing that was holding her back from being her true self. And so I don't want to leave. I have lots of things to do. But I know now I'm not afraid of it because I know that, that I can leave this world with, with my integrity intact. Not wishing I would have done something, but I'm doing it. So beautiful. Oh, I just got shivers. So beautiful. Oh, thanks, Alex. And I, you know, I, I think, I'm sure you feel this way too. Sometimes I feel bad for people that haven't had an alcohol problem. Because I, I've grown so much and learned so much. And, I, you know, now I've, I've forgiven my mom after 50 years, right? You know, really, and really feeling like I've changed the trajectory of my, of my family's life, right? And my grandkids are funny. Like, Grandma, are you bringing the AF drinks? Where are the AF drinks? <laughs> you know, my kids drink. Most of the time, they're, they're pretty responsible about it. But I'm also showing the grandkids that there's a different way. Mm-hmm. And I really like that. Yeah. And so beautiful. And it's not even, I think, what you say to them, but it's just what you show them and what they see in you. And, and so I think that's 
an amazing thing to role model for them. I'm safe for them. You know, I know as a social worker too, I know just scientifically kids don't feel safe when their parents are altered. Wow. It, it bothers them. They just don't feel safe. And so I'm usually the one they kind of seek out now. That's so interesting. Gives me something to think about. All right. I have one last question for you, Peggy. If you had any wisdom for someone who was curious about starting a sober journey, what would that advice be? I would just, I wrote a couple things down. You can't do it alone. You can't do this without community. You can't do it. And you need to tell at least one person everything. You don't have to tell everybody everything, but I think you need to tell one person everything. You know, you're all about your alcohol problem because if you don't, you're, you're always leaving that door open that says maybe I can drink normally. Reframing, you know, especially for people your age, you know, to say that you can't drink in, in your 20s is very daunting, right? Mm-hmm. But to say I, I get to be sober is, is, it is a different way to look at it. And, you know, that really comes out of my social work you know, journaling, I surrender every morning. I just kind of like breathe. I've never, never been into meditation before. This is the first time ever. And I can actually feel my body go from being in my amygdala after pausing and going up into my prefrontal cortex and be able to actually think that, you know, taking that pause and to really have a, I guess an SOS plan. You know, if, if you plan on going out, especially in the early days, I just didn't go anywhere. I just, but that, you know, that was very easy for me with COVID. COVID happened about six months in for me, but just to have a plan, you know, to have, to have a plan and don't go anywhere where alcohol is the main attraction. You can go where there's alcohol, but if it's the main attraction, you need to stay away from it. Yeah, absolutely. All really, really good suggestions. Great wisdom. Thank you so much, Peggy. Oh, yeah. Alex, thank you for having me. It really means the world. It was really nice to meet you. I just feel like we have so many um, connections, and I've heard so much about you from the amazing Kathy and Jeff. And then to finally, like I knew we were saying just before we came on the call of like, we feel like we've already met because we've just seen Mm -hmm. each other so much. And then to finally actually meet you and hear your story, it's just been amazing. So I really appreciate you coming on the show. And I definitely have to get your book after this and start reading it because I'm very interested so just email me i'll i'll send it to you oh, um, that would be amazing yeah get me your address and i'll i'll get you one amazing so for anyone that's listening to this episode i'm gonna pop peggy's links and information in the show notes so anyone can connect with her and her amazing facebook group and that's it for now so thanks for tuning in everyone and have a wonderful rest of your day bye alex bye Hi friend, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Sober Yoga Girl Podcast. This community would not exist without you, so thank you for being here. It would be massively helpful if you subscribe to this show and leave a review so that we can reach more people. And if we haven't met yet in real life, please come hop on Zoom at the Mindful Life Practice because the opposite of addiction is connection. Sending you love and light wherever you are in the world.